Good afternoon, everyone. This is Millie McCluskey in Palm Springs reporting for Embassy Sports of America. There is maybe 2% of the audience who's going to get that reference. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I was like, well, I'm uh, one of that other 98%. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Go ahead and, and kick us off there, sir. All right, let's do this. Yeah. It is Morning Radio TBD. With your hosts, I'm Joshua. I'm Ryan. And we've got a lot of ground to cover today, so we're just going to dive right into it. That's right. It is, uh, let's see, what's it, what have we got the date today? It's February 11th, 2023, at the time of this recording, about uh, almost 11 a.m. We are live together in Nashville, Tennessee for the first time. This is, we've never done an in-person recording before, so this is pretty exciting. Sweet treat for you guys. Uh, this episode will come out uh, post Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, but we're still going to talk about it as if we watched the game. I got to tell you, I, I would have thought that the Chiefs were going to put up a, a better game. Really thought uh, they, they were going to, you know, uh, put up the kind of performance that we've come, we've come to expect. Um, I didn't expect them to get outplayed the way that they did, Josh. Well, the ref was clearly in the pocket of corrupt I gaming mean, officials. There's no question. I can't believe that call. I, I mean, it was the call that determined the game. Had it not been for that call, then, I mean, I think the Chiefs would have stayed in it. But uh, that's uh, that, that's how these things go sometimes, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and, and like, and when you, when you throw that ball and your guy catches the ball and runs it all the way down, you've got a touchdown. Everyone knows that. Everybody knows that, yeah. So the fact that he, he called it a field goal, I just, I don't think anybody saw that coming. No. No, it was ridiculous. And the celebrating, I thought I was watching a soccer match. I was not impressed. No, no, not at all. Not not <laughs> impressed at all. <laughs> um, all right, so go. do you care about either of these teams? I really don't. I, 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 know I that, don't either. I, I know that um, the, the Chiefs fandom has actually been on the rise because they've been getting better for like the last five, six years. Like they've actually been contenders for a while. And so, from what I understand, the, the people who are Chiefs fans are like, we have been Chiefs fans forever. And so, we're like in this. And then, from what I understand, Eagles fans are just, they're usually kind of rabid. Here's the thing. I i don't care about the Eagles. Okay. Like, win or lose, I don't care. It's their fan base that drives me nuts. I'm sorry, <laughs> Eagle fans. You need to chill a little bit. You're out of control. Was it Philadelphia, the, the city that like ripped itself apart? Yep. Not long ago. Yep. <laughs> and that was a happy time. Exactly. <laughs> like they were celebrating and took the city down. So I don't. I don't. I don't know, man. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I did not watch anywhere near enough football. I don't care much about football, American football. I, I don't. I don't care enough about it. I do watch almost every Super Bowl okay. uh, because you, I'll be honest, mostly it's for commercials. Sure, I, um, I think that's kind of part of like the the cultural zeitgeist anymore. Yeah, like yeah. I take I take bathroom breaks during the game, uh, <laughs> uh, and then you never know what kind of halftime show you're going to get. Uh, but the game itself, I think there's been two games in recent memory that have stood out to me. Yeah. Uh, one was the Super Bowl where the Falcons blew a 21-point lead. Mm, yeah. Uh, like, I'm someone that has always rooted for the Falcons, but when they fuck up, they fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was just the, the, the pinnacle uh, yeah. for me. So it's interesting because I, I really enjoy um, college football, which I, I know that that seems like a it's a, I feel like everybody says that anymore, you know, but I, mean, I know that there is a very, very like 
intense professional fan base, but I am somebody that just, I, I love college football. Um, and I think because the reason that I like it is the games still feel very dynamic. When you get to the professional level, like in these teams, the differences between one team and another is so small because they already have the most elite athletes that the games to me don't feel as exciting. And like the best way that I can think about it is, or like the, the especially when you get to like the, the Super Bowl where you're talking about the two best teams of the nation, they're, they're going to grind point for point, right? It's, it's, not, it's never gonna be a, a big exciting fireworks blowout for the most part. And like the community that I, I pay a lot more attention to right now is as my chessboard sits out is the chess community. And when you see a player of significantly higher skill take on somebody of a significantly lower skill, that's when you see like wild fireworks and you see, you know, somebody just get completely ripped apart. But when you look at the chess games of, you know, the top tier players, a lot of chess is kind of solved. And so up to a point, they know the motions of the game already. They like, the, you know, the first 10 to 15 moves are basically predetermined. And then, you know, unless you have somebody do something really weird and creative, uh, it's, it's, you know what, what to expect. And I think that that's kind of what professional football has turned into as well. So, I mean, we'll never get uh, amazing chess final coverage on ESPN. So we'll make do with football. I, you know what? I actually, based on what the chess community is, is doing right now and the way it's blowing up, I wouldn't be shocked. No. You, you might you might see if they will broadcast fucking poker. Chess trust me when I say that the chess community is getting a lot bigger than people think it is and uh it it now has its own um it, it has its own community of professional announcers to call the games. Like I I really think that maybe not this year or next year but if the chess community continues to grow and it continues to get the the sort of attention that it's been getting for like the last ever since pandemic really. Um, Pandemic and Queen's Gambit launched chess into the mainstream in a way that it has not been before. I think that it, maybe not on main ESPN, but on, you know, ESPN The Ocho or something like that. Certainly one of the sub ESPN channels. I think there's a chance that uh, chess starts getting um, mainstream broadcast. Fair enough. Uh, that That's possible. I will say, you know, you pulled out the, the broadcasting poker. If <laughs> yeah. the reigning world belt chess champion comes in all bedazzled out with the big polarized glasses and coats and maybe a couple of uh you know groupies i might be here for it if anybody's going to come to the stage with groupies it would be magnus carlson he's a good looking dude like i mean he's and, and he's like without question not he's the best chess player of this generation undeniably possibly the best chess player of all time ever Ever like the guy's on just another level, and uh, I could see him showing up with groupies. I could I could see him coming in with with the. I yeah. you know I remember his last game. I uh, remember when he uh, you know he did the thing with the pawn, and you're like <laughs> that's not going to play out. But then by the end of the match, you were like, oh my god, he set it up. Uh, he, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> no um this is where we you know plug another content creator gotham chess is my favorite uh, chess commentator out there and uh he used to be a competitive chess player on his own um so he has a lot of really good deep insight into the game um, but he's also he's he was at one point a chess teacher as well so he's very good at walking you through the games and being like, this is why this move works the way that it does. You'll never be able to play it this way, 
But this is why the top professionals play it this way. <laughs> he's he's got a really he's got kind of an acerbic wit to him, which I uh, I, I also appreciate because I'm I'll, I'll be watching and I'll be it's it's that YouTube phenomenon where I'll be watching him like talk through a game and I'm like oh yeah I get this I can I can play this way and then he reminds me no you can't play this way and I'm like yeah he's right I can't I'm not that good. <laughs> so. I I remember being a teenager and um, one of my older sisters she had gone off to college and then went out west and became a hippie came home one time with uh this boyfriend who was very into chess okay and started trying to teach me yeah a little bit yeah and i didn't learn anything (laughs) because my game still sucked but he said it was if you can control the center four squares yeah you can control the game yes and I could see what he did, but I couldn't explain how we got there. It is definitely one of the basic principles of chess playing when you're first starting out, is learning how to control the center of the board. And what's really cool is to watch um, really professional players who decide that, no, I'm not going to go for center control, I'm going to go for wing control, and they like grab the uh, the outer ranks to, to like squeeze their opponent. It's really fascinating to see that that idea upended. But for the most part, yeah, you want to uh, when you're especially in the opening moves of a game, you want to control the center four squares because that's where most of the movement is going to occur is through those spaces or adjacent to those spaces. So it's a good it's a good principle to know. It's a, but to your point, it's entirely different to hear that and then understand it, know how to put it into into a game. Yeah, so right now my kid's been learning how to play chess. So he'll be like, you want to play chess? I'm like, sure. And I try not to destroy him too quickly. Because <laughs> uh, I'm not like, I'm not a very good chess player either, but I can beat a child that's just starting out. Sure. I doubt this will last very long um, because my kid's very clever. He's just also kind of lazy and impatient. But if he reigns <laughs> that part in, uh, I'm done for by the time he's 10. He, he's 100% at the age where if if he actually really does get into chess, he's going to absorb it in just a, a completely different kind of way. And he'll be able to pick apart um, adults within mm-hmm. like a year or two just because he'll he'll strategically understand the game in a way that takes adults years to learn. And it's just it's a matter of how, you know, like how our brains are primed to learn at different points in our life. So I'm jealous of him. I got to say. Yeah. But fortunately, he still wants to do Beyblade battles more. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's probably because he absolutely destroys me in that, and I don't understand because we both rip the freaking top and send it spinning <laughs> at the same time. They're the same size. Uh, I don't know, but he always outspins me. He, he manages uh, to get it. Good ridiculous. for him. Yeah. So, well, that's Super Bowl and yeah. chess, surprisingly. So, I know, I didn't uh, see that That's coming. our sports report. Yeah, I'm glad that we got some uh, sports ball in there. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, the Super Bowl. We know we did, um, having recorded before it happened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, I want to hear about uh, what everybody snacked on, what they, oh. what they made, what they snacked on. That's the other thing I care about. See, I care about everything around a- the Super around Bowl, it. just not necessarily the game itself. So... <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you think you just enjoy parties? With good food. Okay. All right. And, and, and I, I, it's, I think it's a curious phenomenon that everybody, most people seem to like what happens around the Super Bowl. Like they like the celebratory element. But I mean, if you ask most people off the street who played in the Super Bowl last year, do you think anybody could even name the teams or who won? I mean, your sports fans, 100%. They'll be like, this, 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 here's the place. But do we think that the average human being... Who's just oh, going, that's a good question. going through life? 
That's a good question. Right? Because hmm. I'm sitting here right now and I'm going to tell you I have no idea who played in the Super Bowl last year. Wasn't it Tampa Bay? Was it? Was it last year? Tampa Bay last year? The only... Shoot, I don't remember. The only Tampa Bay uh, Super Bowl that I know was 07 when they played the Phoenix Cardinals. And that was because uh, I was in a band at the time that was one of like the opening acts before the actual Super Bowl. Oh, no. It was the Bengals and the Rams. No shit. Last year, the Bengals went to the Super Bowl? Wait, why don't I remember this? I, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> this, this is my point. I'm in the year before it was Tampa Bay and the Chiefs. So Tampa, Tampa Bay, Bay and, and the Chiefs, Chiefs in 2021, uh, the Rams and Bengals. I remember the Rams. I don't remember the Bengals part. Good I don't for either. them. Yeah, good. good I for mean, those Cincinnati teams. could use a win. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they won it. I don't think so either. Sorry. But I, mean, that, I think actually that that makes sense now because I know that the Bengals not making it to the Super Bowl this year was like apparently one of the big disappointments of the season. Um, and yeah, that, they were pretty on fire. Yeah. Uh, them and uh, the Bills. They had oh. a really good season. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's get off the sports report. Yeah, sure. What do you got for me, Josh? Uh, well, we're going to go over some world news stuff. Yeah. Uh, just some... some Headlines that came across this past uh, week and a half that I think are worth noting about. Uh, our top story, uh, there was an earthquake. A really um, bad earthquake. Yeah. Uh, Buffalo, New York got hit by a 3.8 earthquake. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I know that's not what you were expecting. No, it's uh, not what I was expecting. But yeah. <laughs> no, got, not uh, what I was expecting. I well, I think technically it was Seneca. New Seneca, York. Seneca, New York. Uh, I don't I, want people in New York. Some people in New York are very touchy about I what town they're in. I had no idea that this, yes. this was a thing. Okay. It, it happened around the same time okay. as the uh, headline-stealing Turkey earthquake. Uh, to be fair, that's only because it's way more devastating. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just uh, Turkey, Syria got literally wrecked by a massive earthquake. Uh, you can see photos of these like, these like aerial shots of the fault line and how, uh, first of all, the, the devastation notwithstanding, but then uh, I think what's always fascinating to me about a major earthquake is when you see these aerial shots and you see your ground is misaligned. Yeah. You're like, oh, the puzzle is not fitting right anymore. Um, Which is always, it, to me, it, it's it's a little bit terrifying to look at those pictures and wonder, okay, it's it's out of alignment. Technically, the Earth's crust kind of floats on top of the mantle. I, I know we don't really think of it that way, and it's a little bit more secure, but, I mean, that's kind of what's going on. And so, at the end of the day, it could just... They could stay there, but it seems to me that they, if they've weathered in such a way that there is some sort of alignment that's supposed to exist, is there a follow-up earthquake where everything snaps back into place? That is something that... Uh, Not is, necessarily. Um Geologically terrifying idea, but yeah. So, uh, massive recovery effort is underway, going yeah. to be underway for weeks and months as uh, the death toll keeps climbing as people um, recover more and more uh, people or bodies trapped in rubble. This is super tragic, and I didn't realize this, but basically, every single day that goes on that they don't pull people out of the wreckage. Like the the assumed death po death toll rises exponentially. Like it doesn't go up incrementally. It's now they have to assume based on how much time has passed, 
actually we can basically we can basically assume that this many more people have died and that's it's just super tragic yeah i i cheer a little bit every time i come across like a a, a photo or a brief headline of someone or someone's being found alive and just, some of them that are in remarkably good spirits they just found like a, a newborn baby yeah like it had been born under the rubble and they there were so I, i've seen two of these stories in the most recent one from what i understand both the mother and the baby survived like they, they got them mm-hmm. both out so yeah one uh the, the mom survived there was one that the i don't think the mom did right because it's um thousands of people are petitioning to adopt this baby yeah and while that's <clears throat> nice i the cynical negative judgmental part of my brain is like you're doing this for clout it's. I, I mean, it. It, it does. I, I. I assume that there have been, that among these thousands of people, there are people who have been trying to adopt for quite some time. But it does raise a question for everybody else who saw the famous baby that was born under the earthquake. Where have you been all this time? Like, mm-hmm. you, there are lots of other children that have needed homes, and so I. I just. I, I hear I, the cynicism. Yeah. I hope he ends up. He or she ends up with a good, loving family. Yeah. And not. A bitch-ass mom that's going to be like, you can't even take out the trash? I saved you <laughs> from an earthquake, and this is the thanks you get. Like, by the time I'm a teen, I'd be like, oh my god, I wish I was still in the rubble. I wish, I wish I'd never climbed out. <laughs> uh, so, yes. Um, earthquake recovery efforts. Uh, the aid is needed. Yeah. Um, lots of different... Charity organizations, uh, humanitarian aid groups are out there. I encourage people to donate, do what you can. Cash is the most beneficial. Um, it might seem like this is the perfect opportunity for you to be like, spring cleaning in North America. Yes, let's get rid of all these clothes, <laughs> give it to these poor earthquake survivors. That's great, but that, that it just doesn't work like that. Um, so material goods, keep it local. Um, financial support. That's really where it's needed. Yeah. Make sure you know who you're giving to. This is, this is a good talking point because I think that a lot of people, when they see tragedy like this, they are immediately moved to give in some way or another, but don't necessarily. And, and I mean, because who's, who's actually paying attention to this? You assume that if it's a charity organization, that any dollar you give to them is immediately being funneled on to uh, the people who need it most. It's not actually the case. So, as you were saying, Josh, there are there are ways to track this. Yeah, uh, CharityWatch.org is got a really uh, good uh, track record in, in terms of vetting uh, aid organizations and who actually passes that money along the way they should. Uh, some of the top ones right now are, are of course, uh, UNICEF, uh, the IRC, Doctors Without Borders. Uh, but the list goes on from there. Uh, just take a look at different charities. And I would say this in general. Like if you're feeling charitable, you want to donate, you want to help your fellow people, whether it's out of the kindness of your heart or for tax purposes, um, take a minute to make sure you're going somewhere where your money is actually going to do the most good. All these organizations, they have an overhead. They have operating costs. So that dollar you give a portion of that is going to go toward the operation of the charity organization itself, which is fine. That's just financial. Uh, but you want as much of your dollar as possible 
going toward helping people. And there are uh, some of these organizations, they're, they're 88% and above uh, going towards helping yeah, and that's the, I mean, it, most of these charity organizations do operate as like a 501c3 or some sort of nonprofit, but at the same time, like Josh mentioned, the their, if their overhead cost is such that just, you know, having the organization exist uh, means that, you know, the, the money that you're giving to them, a lot of it ends up just keeping the organization afloat. It just isn't the most efficient use of your donation dollars. And it's, you know, again, it's a little bit cynical that we even have to kind of like discuss this. Um, but definitely make sure because it, it, it will never be one for one. If you give a dollar to a charity organization, they're never going to pass on that entire dollar to the people in need. Again, they have to just make sure that they are keeping themselves afloat um, and able to provide the infrastructure where you can provide donations that they then do pass on. But there are good resources to find out how much of my donation dollar is actually being passed on and, and charity watch like josh was saying great one um and you might be a little bit surprised at uh um who is passing on as much as they are and who is not so not gonna like name names or anything do your own research but uh if you can it's definitely somewhere that help is needed Okay, now when we say do your own research, guys, <laughs> real quick, uh, you need to vet where you're getting your information TikTok from. TikTok and YouTube are not necessarily the best place to be going. No. You can start there. Yes. Because that maybe be the more accessible it, way to get the information, but then just take an extra second and be like, okay, is this actually... Yeah. That's all you need. They're, they are great meta search tools, right? Like you learn about you learn about the existence of things anymore on on places like TikTok and YouTube, like you know shit that you didn't even know was out there. So it's a great place to start, but you do need to do some additional follow up because just because somebody points a camera at their face and says something with confidence, um, I mean, my God, we proved that with me the other week with the Mandela effect as I was you know riffing on the movie Shazam, Kazam, and I thought for sure I had the facts on that one. And I presented those facts very confidently. Oh, I love that moment so much. And you were like, no, you're you're wrong. And I was like, well, fuck me. So, uh, yeah, just because somebody has, you know, pleasing baritone in their voice and speaks with a degree of confidence does not mean that their facts are correct. Yes. <laughs> Listen to us. Listen to us <laughs> filling your ears whole right now as we tell you to not take everything at face value. <laughs> but use common sense. Yeah. Because this is how, like, conspiracy theories start this is how misinformation spreads is someone takes something and just kind of runs with it right. but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole no. there's plenty of other entities that do that for us uh <laughs> just give if you can yes support if you can um it would go a long way every little bit helps um i don't care Th you know this isn't about the politics geopolitical politics it's just helping Helping people who, out. Need, who really need help, who, who really need it. I learned about something uh, in the course of this this horrific event. Uh, there is something called earthquake diplomacy. It's uh, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't heard of this before. Greek Greece and Turkey have what they are co what's called earthquake diplomacy, where no matter where they stand with each other politically, if an earthquake hits those either of them, they help each other out. No questions asked. Yeah. 
This is a really fascinating partnership. It's, it's a very big deal because uh, tensions between Greece and Turkey go back ages, um, like centuries. I think it all kicked off. Uh, there was a guy from Turkey. He came over, stole this like Greek queen. Um, the king got pissed and rallied up his buddies. They launched like a thousand ships to go hit and fought like a big long war. Uh, to break this guy's city and take back, you know, take back his wife. Uh, and things have never been the same since. Are we talking about the Trojan War? <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, it, it was it was epic. Yeah. You got a firsthand report from a guy named Homer. Homer. I think it was. Yeah, yeah I, think, he, I think Homer, he wrote, a, he wrote a pretty good story about it, right? Yeah, he was, he was a field reporter. He was there. Yep. He, he was... He was an embed. Yeah, and he, he was freaking long-winded, too. Uh, but... Like, that's a guy who gave you the full story. He was like, now this guy, who, by the way, is descended from X, Y, Z, Q, D, all the way up through the alphabet. Yeah. Uh, it inevitably ties back to the gods, but they can't be reached for comment. Uh, he tried. He tried. Tried so hard. I think the only one that, that managed to was Odysseus. Odysseus did, did get some kind of commentary from Poseidon, but from what I understand, it actually, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't print it. It was, it was pretty raunchy from what I understand. It was a little rough. That, had yeah. to, uh, that story had to come out. A little bit later. Yeah. All right. That's a little tongue in cheek, but obviously, <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> those countries are always kind of at odds with each other. Yeah. It's just not talked about um, in favor of like some other more potent ra- uh, rivalries like Israel Palestine. Um, that's kind of the the spotlight in the region. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they have earthquake diplomacy. I thought that was really cool and also kind of unfortunate that earthquakes screw up that area of the world on the regular. I, I, I am more and more curious about where humanity has chosen to settle. And I'm sure that if we go, if we really take it all the way back, then there's probably something to do with like how, you know, uh, how the, the, the land in that area could be, you know, tilled for agriculture. Or, you know, was there some sort of natural spring? So I don't know. There's probably reasons at one point that it made a lot of sense. But, you know, the fact that we continue to settle along floodplains don't get it. The fact that we, you know, have uh, these these massive communities that are built around fault lines, like I don't get it. It's uh, I, I'm, and, and again, this is this is probably ignorance on my part that I just don't understand why that made sense at one time, but it clearly doesn't make sense now. The fact that they are seeing this kind of, and, and, and this isn't a, uh, I don't want this to come across as you know what what were they thinking even living there in the first place. Um, because obviously these are people going through a, a terrible tragedy right now. I just I um, I do wonder about as we continue to expand, are these things that we start paying more attention to? Like, hey, this is an area that sees regular geological activity. We probably shouldn't put houses here. This is uh, this can be applied to a lot of different uh, phenomenons around the world yeah. between uh, you know global climate change and. Um, you know, like you said, earthquake activity, fault line activity. Um, it was recently discussed that the Earth's core is starting to change direction. Yeah, it does. Like it spins one way, and now it's about to spin back the other way. I don't know what bearing that has on us all the way up here. <laughs> uh, I, so they made a movie about it. It was called The Core. And, uh, yeah, it makes me... From what I understand, we're going to have to drill 
all the way to the center of the earth and uh, light off some nukes in order to make sure that, that this doesn't... Uh, That's the go-to, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, we, it's, we just nuke nukes. it. Yeah, we always it's nuke all it. nukes. Can yeah. we nuke it? Yep. I, I mean, they, they tried to, in the last administration, uh, nuke a hurricane. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's always the go-to. To be fair, we don't know for sure. <laughs> all these projections and theories on paper say it won't work, but we've never actually tried Has it. Has anybody actually tried it? Yeah, you can do computer simulations all you want, but you need to get, you know, a bad boy. Who's our big action hero right now? Uh... I mean, like in film and yeah, probably yeah. The Rock. I guess The Rock. Yeah, yeah. Get The Rock to pilot something that's going to launch a nuke into the hurricane, and what? Yeah, what's supposed to happen at that point? I, like, I, I truly don't know. God, is there not a Sci-Fi Channel movie? There should be nuclear hurricane called Nuclear Hurricane. Yeah. Oh my God, how is there not a Sci-Fi <laughs> called Nuclear Hurricane? It's, Get on it, Sci-Fi. It's raining devastation. Oh my God. Yes, <laughs> that's what the tagline is going to be. <laughs> it's not just a Cat Five; it's a Defcon One. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like our, our our world is full of like. Really weird, interesting shit, and then just like dumb stuff. Yeah, like scientists. There's there's a science group that wants to. They're actively working on trying to resurrect the woolly mammoth. Yeah, and they recently said they're going to try to do it with the dodo bird. Interesting. I get it. These guys never read Jurassic Park. I get it. <laughs> they probably only saw the movie. If you read the book, there's way more chaos theory involved. And you're yeah. like, oh, maybe we should. Yeah, this, this gets the out movie, of control fast. Yeah. You'll, you, you could lose the, the point. Um, <laughs> why the woolly mammoth? Like, I get being like, oh, I just want to see if we can do it. I'm like, the earth is too hot. Yeah, it's it is it that one is an odd one. Now that you, I, 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 I'm guessing the answer to why the woolly mammoth is because we have managed to recover enough of its DNA that it's actually feasible. Yes, they're finding these like perfectly preserved prehistoric carcasses in the melting tundras. Yeah, this is not great. This is not a good look for us. <laughs> this is this is not great. <laughs> the dodo bird I can kind of see. That's relatively recent in yeah, our yeah. global history. Um, it, it it might survive. I, it also makes me wonder if this is like if this is something that we can legitimately do, or we're getting close to a point that like they they should be Noah's arcing basically every species on the planet. Like if they can track it down, they need to be able to grab it, grab some of its DNA, and put it in some sort of deep storage so that you know because we're going through a mass extinction event right now. Like we are losing so many species on a daily basis because of climate change. Maybe there's a possibility that we can bring some of those back if we ever get our our planet under control. If it's meant to happen. I still maintain we look about this the wrong way. Okay. We look at climate change as like we're in denial about it. I think that a like, large portion of the population isn't deniable about yeah, it. Yeah. That's because we're looking at it the wrong way. Because like everything's like, oh, our earth is in crisis. All these ecosystems, our earth is in crisis. And yes, these things are dying off. Yeah. That is also part of the cycle. If you look at all of life, the universe, and everything. That is part of the cycle. The problem is we need to take a more selfish look at this and be like, uh, we are, we, you homo sapiens, we're screwed. Uh, yeah. 
So I, I guess my the, the the this happens all the time. I, I I hear that argument, but I think what it it fundamentally mischaracterizes is our impact on that cycle. Like yes, species spring up and die off as the eons go by. It's never been at the pace that it, it that it is right now, except for during mass extinction events like you know the asteroid that hit the Earth that, that knocked out the, the dinosaurs, right? Mm -hmm. it, it always requires an external force to speed the process up, and right now, human beings are that external force. And I think that the, the fact that, uh, I don't know what, what argument can be made at this point that's gonna sway people's minds because we tried the Hey, we're killing the rainforest. That didn't seem to do anything to people. Um, now we're losing, you know, thousands of species at a time. That's not doing anything. I don't know that there are people who, even if you, they took it from a selfish standpoint, like you're suggesting, I think because it's so abstract and it doesn't affect them in their lives in the moment until they are frying on the sidewalk. And even then, I think some people are just going to be like, no, it's it's not human beings. We're not the cause of this. This is just what the planet does. It's like it, it fundamentally isn't what the planet does. This is not how this works. Yeah, you're definitely seeing it helped along uh, from its its natural course. And I'm not going to argue that. It's just yeah, yeah. The, the rhetoric, unfortunately, has to be centered around us and how we are going to suffer. And, and, and I... So I agree with that. No, I, I'll say I, I agree with that. I'm curious why that rhetoric hasn't landed yet, considering in just the last decade alone, when we look at the kind of natural disasters that are unequivocally caused by climate change, the fact that hurricanes are getting worse, uh, that flooding continues to get worse, that we have melting in the polar regions that are exposing creatures that have been gone for millions of years. They've been frozen in this ice, and it's viruses. Uh, that's that's the. I think that'll be the one. I, I think that once we release some sort of ridiculous Andromeda strain super virus from the the ice, that's when people might start paying attention. Oh my god, another Michael Crichton reference. Yeah, yeah that's look, two, man, I'm, that's a twofer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People shout out about, to MC. People forget about the Andromeda uh, Andromeda strain, but that movie I don't know that it was all that great, but the book was. Book was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the so well so let's scale this down. Okay. Into a more immediate, very in our backyard concern. Go for I, it. In our backyard, I mean, <clears throat> in America, um, the western part of the country, specifically <laughs> the southwest, is running out of water. Yeah, a, a, it, like a lot. <laughs> and um, the, the natural weather pattern cannot replenish fast enough. There was a news cycle recently about the atmospheric rivers that were just drenching California. Yep. And this was bad news. Yeah. This was bad news because uh, there was tons of flooding and mudslides and all that was bad. But I was like, you're finally getting some of your water back. Shut the fuck up. But it's it, the, the problem is, is that it's coming so fast and hard that it runs off to the, it, it can't be recaptured. That's yes. the issue. And so it's, it's, I mean, it, it's nice that they're getting some water back, but it is in, it, it's coming in. It, it basically, it's like trying to having an empty cup and being like, I need this cup to be full and going up to a fire hydrant and saying, fill my cup. And it's just going to blast, you know, the, the cup right out of your hand essentially. So it, yeah, the, it, it's good that they are getting some of it back. It's not the right way. It's not the way that they need it. Fair. Uh, but, you know, you can't control the weather yet. Uh, <laughs> until we can, uh, 
we need to face the reality that uh, Western water sources, freshwater sources, are drying up at an alarming rate. Uh, you had these states that need to form a new water sharing agreement involving the Colorado River, and they can't quite agree. No surprise. Everyone thinks they should have yeah. an, an allotment of the water. And so the federal government's probably going to have to step in, which, of course, then you're going to have another, oh, states' rights, we can you know, govern ourselves. All of that And bullshit. it's like, well, apparently yeah. you freaking can't. Um, in the meantime, uh, Lake Mead yep. is down dramatically. Uh, Salt Lake is being projected to virtually disappear within the next, like, five to ten years, unless something dramatically changes. Uh, that's fascinating. And what's happening? Investment firms are trying to buy up the Colorado River. I read a sci-fi book about this when I was in college. I read a sci-fi book about companies hoarding uh, the water rights. And it was causing Phoenix to become like a Mad Max hellhole. And it's eerie. I can't remember the name of the book now. Uh, But it's eerie how much this kind of prophesized what we're actually starting to see happen right now. Uh, Nobody should be able to buy up water rights. So this is really, um, this is, this is the backbone of the, uh, the sci-fi that I'm writing right now, but uh, something that was really spooky. Um, Have you seen the big short? Yes. Okay. Did you stay through the credits and watch like all the little, where are they now's at the end? No. Okay. So the guy who predicted it, the one who like dug into the analytics and he was, I think is, I think it was Michael Berry. He was played by Christian Bale in, in the movie. Um, and, uh, basically like saw the pattern before anybody else didn't realize that all of these, you know, funds had like really shitty mortgages in them. Anyway, after he made a gazillion dollars off of shorting, uh, you know, the American mortgage, all of it, (laughs) uh, the next thing that he started investing in was water. Mm-hmm. And there are people who have seen this coming for a while. And I, I think we are, we are getting very close to a crisis tipping point where water insecurity is going to impact a significant portion of the United States population. I believe it. Yeah. I, I had, a, <clears throat> I had a, a high school teacher when I was in high school. Uh, he said at one point, if you own a piece of land mm-hmm. and you have a, a water source yeah, on it, like a he's well. like, you sit on that. Yeah. And you you hold out for the, la- the, the highest possible dollar because somebody will want it. Probably we'll, soon. Uh, yeah. Now, in terms of, of water supply, like Florida is in a, a, a good Florida, place. Florida is a swamp. It, it's just, well, I mean, it has water. Drain the Everglades. And, and the West. Get rid of the fucking alligators. Nobody needs How that. dare you? I got out. Sorry. I'm I sorry. I would like to apologize to uh, Gators Daily on Twitter. We love alligators. I, I don't. Alligators <laughs> are my nightmare. They are dinosaurs. And I, I don't actually want. No. They're an important part of the ecosystem. I just ranted and raved about climate change and mass extinctions. The alligators shouldn't go away. I can hate them all the same. Uh, I hate crocodiles. <laughs> I'm fine with alligators. Okay. Crocodiles scare the crap out of me, especially the Australian saltwater, the saltwater crocodiles. Crocs, yeah. uh, I don't like the idea of trying to escape something in the ocean 
Yeah. I don't like the idea of a crocodile coming after me in the ocean. In the ocean, yeah. I'm like, you should not be here. Those fuckers get big. Yeah. I don't want to have realized that I wasted so much time befriending sharks (laughs) for a crocodile to come after me. My shark friends won't be able to save me. I mean, that is a sci-fi movie, a sharkodile. Which, you know, where it's it's half crocodile, half shark. Of course shark. it is. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. I don't... Uh, uh, but, like, the, the western U.S. is drying yeah. up. Uh, the, the southwestern United States is drying up. Uh, they, there's too many people. There's too many people. There's too many interests out there. Um, here, here, here's the last thing I want to say about it. Uh California and Arizona, I think, are the two that are particularly deadlocked about who should have more water rights. Sure. Uh, whoever bans golf courses first should get the water. And this is so I, you know, I'm I'm uh, I, I like California's politics for the most part. You know, they, they tend to be a little bit more aligned with my, you know, hippie progressive self and all that. I don't understand why they are insisting on holding on to their goddamn golf courses. It cannot be that big a part of their GDP that these golf courses need to remain in in business because that that's one of my biggest issues with part of the reason that the desert is drying up is because we t- keep trying to make green shit out there and it's mm-hmm. a, it, it's a desert. It's not meant to what, look that way. Th- there's so much agriculture out in California. And and there is a lot and and that that is because Growing season is basically around in California, especially Southern yeah. California. Like it's, it, it, I, I do not, I, you can't discount the fact that they are kind of the cradle of a lot of, a lot of the ag in in the United States. I mean, obviously the Midwest is, um, but the Midwest has a growing season. California is, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, audience, but basically year round. Yeah, yeah, kind of like Florida, you can always grow something right any time of the year. Yep. Um, but they also have massive one crop only. Which is that's a huge problem. Which that's not good for your soil, but that you know, tune in to our farming podcast that we will never have. (laughs) Uh, So that's, I mean, that's it about climate and stuff. Some good news: the ozone layer is healing. Yeah, Uh, I heard that, so that's great. We did, we did something right. We got a little closer. These are some celebrations that we should be able to celebrate these things. I assume that's because of the vegans. Is it getting uh, the, not as much? Uh, I think cow farts? I think it's the reduction in hairspray. <laughs> once the I think 80s it's the advances the, in flat iron and hair dryer technology. Once once the eighties hairspray eighties ended, we got rid of fucking Aquanet, and uh, now <laughs> yep. I mean, I, I, if that's the case, uh, it's it's one more reason that Motley Crue should just completely retire. Like it's time to put away the oh. hairspray, guys. And this is coming from a diehard Motley Crue fan. It is long past time. You got to hang it up. You are the reason that the ozone layer has not healed as much. Nikki Six, put the Aquanet down and step back slowly. God, this podcast has so many shots fired in it. <laughs> this episode is divisive. It's polarizing. We haven't even gotten to the State of the Union. Oh, Ooh. that's right. We We're not going to talk much about the State of the Union. We're not. No, it, 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 was a, it was a speech. It was, it was a campaign speech. It really, was, that's what it was. I mean, it, and, and like the, the thing is, is had had there not been as much quote unquote crowd interaction, I think people would have watched that State of the Union and said it was basically boilerplate, right? Like it's exactly what you kind of expect a State of the Union speech to be. But the fact that there was so much reaction from a particular side of the aisle 
drove it into the space where people are talking about it and being like, this is a really like, you know, knockdown drag out State of the Union speech. And I was like, first of all, no, I watched it. It wasn't that bad. No. Um, but also, I, I mean, the, the content was great. Like loved hearing, you know, talk about like economic issues. I disagree that the economy is in the place that Biden seems to think it is. Um, but it was good to hear him talk about economic issues, plans for economic issues, plans for, you know, things that are, are you know, quote unquote, kitchen, kitchen table stuff. Um, but I, I, I didn't think that it was that, like, outstanding. It was just the fact that some people yelled during it. So if we're not careful, Congress is going to turn into uh, the House of Commons. I am not. I'm, I, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I am very yes. okay with it. Yeah. Give us some more back and forth. I, I want to see somebody attempt to march out of Congress holding the mace above their head because, you know, Congress can't be in session if the fucking mace isn't there. <laughs> Just like in the House of Commons. I want to see that happen. That's the end run that I want to see is somebody's like, fine, I, there will be no debate. I'll take the mace. Anytime I hear any sort of like BBC news coverage about like political happenings in the UK, they always play a snippet of like whatever's going on and you hear the speech that the prime minister or whichever MP is yep. making, but you hear all the shit talking in the background, <laughs> which is so incongruous with how I picture British people to behave. But you know what though? The, the, the kind of insults that they do fling, they, they make me laugh. Like they still rely on very old timey insults. Like they, you know, it's like, I believe that MP is a common dandy. And it's stuff like that. Whereas, you know, in the United States, when people like argue, they're like, yo, get out of here. Like, it's just, I don't know. There's, still a classiness to the way that the British insult each other that is missing from the way that we do shit here in the US so I am all in favor of it becoming House of Commons if we can grab onto this sort of high-toned insult and I think that's lovely. that's because they know not to let any of the Arsenal people near the mics <laughs> Is that what it is? <laughs> is, it, is that, once again shots fired <laughs> I'm sorry no, no it's nothing against Arsenal but own who you are. <laughs> uh, the yeah, the State of the Union. I was watching it, and I was watching because I wanted to know what the news reactions were talking about. Right. Um, because yeah, all anyone was talking about was like, "Ooh, Biden backed him into a corner about Medicare and Social Security. They have to hold their word." First of all, no, they don't. No, they don't. That's that's that's, that's assuming that there's any kind of intellectual integrity. No, they don't. But I watched this moment, and I was like. I, this is way less than what you made it out to be, media. Like, this is just... For, uh, Biden is too old. I'm sorry. <laughs> this guy's speech was so unnecessarily long, and there's meandering moments. But it's just, his delivery is... He, he, oh, Biden, uh, Biden was not coached enough by Obama, I think. Well, I mean, given a speech. one of the things it's is just, like, I mean, so Obama as an orator definitely is in, is in his own class. One of the things that like Biden that we do have to kind of grade on a curve is that he he has, he's a stutterer, right? And so mm -hmm. we do have to give him, a, you know, uh, some credit in that regard that he has managed to overcome that and deliver a, uh, a speech with any kind of like smoothness at all. Like that, that should not be uh, discounted is that the man had a stutter growing up and he is now able to at least orate in a way that is, uh, it, it sounds presidential. Um, I, even still he's, I mean, he's not the most interesting guy to listen to. Again, I thought that what he addressed was very, 
boilerplate is the best way that I can put it. It's it fine. Like the, I didn't, I, I didn't object to anything wildly, but I wasn't also like super into, uh, well, the, the junk fees was a really interesting idea. And, um, you know, anytime somebody brings up taxing the rich, I'm going to be like, tax the fuck out of the rich. Um, so I was on board with that stuff, but for the most part, it was just sort of mainstream normie democratic talking points that were delivered in such a way that it, it, I'll say the, the one thing about the, the State of the Union uh, that I give them a lot of credit for was sticking to very, what you would, I guess, consider it moderate politics because it did make the Republican response seem completely out of left field. Like, I think the Republican response as delivered by Sarah Huckabee Sanders was probably written before they even heard Biden's State of the Union. I, I mean, obviously, because they, they delivered it so quick, but I think they assumed that he would lean more into cultural issues. And their response seemed completely incoherent compared to what Biden said. It like this. I do. I do think that was a smart play. Where they were like, "Do not go into the culture war." Thing. Sure. Yeah. Stay on the economy. The economy is the the hot button issue right yeah. now uh, because egg prices are still out of control. Yeah. Uh, I have so, a fortress of eggs in my refrigerator so that I can insulate myself temporarily against rising prices. You should sell them on the dark web. <laughs> <laughs> you should sell them on the dark web. Uh, the, yeah, the, the speech and and the the Republican response speech from Huckabee Sanders, it was, it's just noise. It's just it noise to me. I, I was like, okay, so now you have to pay attention for a couple more years to see like, okay, well, what are they actually going to do? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I noticed that. Sarah Huckabee Sanders had her arms completely covered in accordance with Arkansas's new laws about like covering up and not showing your shoulders because that's scandalous. Yeah, I know. So it's uh, so I don't want to see Sarah's shoulders. Uh-uh. Gross. I, you know what? But I I would respect her right to do so if her state wasn't trying to turn you know shit into like Christian Sharia law. But that's, well, you know what? I'm gonna start calling them Arkansas. Okay. <laughs> they want to do this. You want to if that's crap. You, if that's that how you want to play Arkansas, that's what yeah, you, that's, you are now. Arkansas. You're Arkansas. Uh, and finally, our our last uh, news bit. I think we should talk about is uh, the new Lincoln Park single. <laughs> yes. Because yeah. you ca- you called out in a past episode uh-huh. that you were a closet Lincoln Park fan. Yeah, I, I I will never admit to liking Lincoln Park, but I like Lincoln Park. So what is the problem with admitting that you like Lincoln Park? So this is going to go back to my pride as an ex-metalhead. Like, okay. uh, you know, being, um, being, I mean, you're now talking about what feels like a lifetime. I mean, Jesus, 15 years ago was when I like, 15, 16 years ago was when I was really, really deep in, in the metal scene. And like, there were just, there were bands in the metal scene that you respected because they walked the walk, they talked the talk. Lincoln Park just simply was not one of them. They were very... They seemed almost corporately created to be a metal band that could appeal to the mainstream. Now, there were metal bands that appealed to the mainstream. You didn't have to, uh, like, build the band the way that they did. But Linkin Park was one that seemed very corporate. And so there there just wasn't as much, like, gut and grits to them. And uh, so, yeah, they were, you know, you didn't, I, I was, uh, yeah. So Linkin Park is classified, I think, classified as a new metal. Right, exactly. And new metal, NU, new metal all of that was totally discounted by the actual heavy metal scene because new metal it, that it was this corporate creation it was it's just very fake when you listen to 
Lincoln Park versus, I mean, it, it's it's a boring standard, but it's an easy one to, to grasp onto. Lincoln Park versus Metallica, there's, you're talking about two entirely different, like, just the attitude behind it. It's a very different sound. Exactly. Yeah. But new metal was designed to basically soften. It, it, I, I, so I'll, here's the, um, Here's the comparison that I'll draw. New metal was the late '90s version of hair metal, right? It okay. was a pop version of yeah. metal, and nobody in the '80s who was a metalhead liked hair metal. It was bubblegum. It was goofy. It was ridiculous. The reason that I like it is because I don't think it takes itself too seriously, and I enjoy that in my music sometimes. I think new metal actually tried to take itself seriously, and it, that's where I was like, "You're you're just not pulling it off." So I guess I looked at new metal as being like the gateway drug into proper metal it's like okay if you like this i'm on board with this now try this and you'd be like oh this is way different than limb biscuit yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i think that for for people who were uh, more ambassadors uh in the metal scene that that was a way that you could you could position that um would be all right so yeah you 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 dig this kind of sound Maybe maybe kicking it up a notch with this one. Here's here's the black album. You know, see what see what this does for you. And then the next thing you know, the person's listening to fucking Mastodon, and uh, they they have a whole different life uh, perspective. Um, so I could I could see it going that direction. I think at the end of the day, the cynical part of me was they designed this these kinds of bands simply for mainstream appeal. It's like bro country these days. Like hmm. you know, uh, to me, Lincoln Park was one of those groups that kind of straddled hip-hop and rock. Right, which was very much the new, s- the new metal sound, yeah. But I think they did it more or less successfully. So I, the, the counterexample that I'll, I'll ask you about and, and get your, your thoughts on, Rage Against the Machine. Uh, I like them okay, but to me, every song sounds the same. Yeah, but they, they are definitely, they feel, to me, they feel much more metal. They're actually, they're, yes. they're very much a funk inspired band they're they're funk and hip-hop and they're um super interesting in that regard uh, oh, i never thought about that oh i could, yeah. I could see the funk influence yeah now that you said that very much yeah funk and hip-hop uh, inspired but rage against the machine is a band that i could still put into proper metal despite the fact that they have overlap into hip-hop um which is also undeniable like they they appeal in both directions i think i don't know maybe maybe there's hip-hop fans that would disagree with me on that <laughs> <laughs> continuing the division yes of this episode well this year marks the 20th anniversary of lincoln park's meteora album i, I mean undeniable classic it's it's great uh one thing i've always enjoyed about lincoln park is each album they change up their sound a little bit sure uh because meteora sounds so different from hybrid theory yeah and then the one after that sounds so much different from meteor like they just they continue to play with their sound um i mean each album those songs in that album have a certain similarity and theme to them um but album to album you're like oh this is a different sound so the the single they just released uh aptly titled lost It was it was a song that was meant to go on the Meteor album. Yeah, but they they cut it. Um, and so if you listen to it, you're like, oh yes, this sounds right in line with the songs that were on the Meteor album. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's just nostalgia kicking at me. Maybe it's just knowing that Chester Bedingfield is gone, mm. 
and that they haven't re- they haven't done any new music since then. Um, like the rest of the band is still together, but they haven't tried to replace him yet. Sure. Um, I, I think it's kind of haunting, but in like such a wonderful way to hear. So I have a uh, I have a playlist um, called "Sitting Around with Ghosts," and uh, I I pick some of like the last great recordings of artists that have passed on. So songs like uh, oh my god, now it's going to um, completely slip my mind um, by Queen. Uh, the show must go on uh, by Queen, uh, which is the very last song that Freddie Mercury ever uh, recorded or hurt. Uh, as recorded by Johnny Cash, um, was that Cash's one of the last Cash's last? It was songs? one of his very last. Yeah, oh, it wasn't the very shoot. last, but it was it was towards the end of his 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 career. Um, a recent one that I put on there was uh, Hellraiser, um, the restored duet of Lemmy Kilmeister and Ozzy Osbourne, because mm-hmm. Lemmy has passed on, and hearing his voice speak out from the past. Is, is an intense experience. This song will probably end up going on that playlist because it would seat very nicely with that where it's it, it, it's kind of a weird moment to hear something released after somebody is gone and to hear them speak back out from beyond, essentially. And that's hence the name Sitting Around With Ghosts. Um, I like it. Yeah. And that's uh, there, there's a power to that. Ozzy's not going to tour anymore. I I feel so, so terrible about this. Um, not just for the fans, but for Ozzy himself. Have you ever seen Ozzy live? No. So I saw him, I think the last time, it's been a long time since I've seen Ozzy, but um, I've I've seen him at OzFest a few times and I'll never forget um, the 04 OzFest tour. That's the one that like will always stand out in my head because I got to see the original lineup of Slipknot, Slayer, Judas Priest, and Black Sabbath were all in that one show. It was unbelievable. But the thing about it was, it was at the time that... um, the his reality show oh yeah you know and everybody thought that he was just sort of like this doddering old fool and it, you seeing him live on stage you realize it was very much an act he was putting on for the camera because Ozzy has so much energy and presence and like him on stage you can tell that's just simply where he belonged that's where he was supposed to be and for him to not have that anymore, my heart breaks for that man. Like, I, I don't know. It, it, it's really, really tragic that he's that he's not going to be able to do it. But I am proud of him for having the self-awareness to be like, I can't do it. I'm not going to try. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, there's plenty of other artists out there that have tried to push back. He doesn't want to half-ass it. it, it it's um, between him and Mick Mars. Mick is the, uh, he's the original guitar player for uh, Motley Crue. And uh, Mick has suffered from a, a bone disease his entire life where the, the bones in his back have been fusing together slowly. And he like physically is almost incapable of like what we would understand as traditional movement anymore. Like he can kind of get around, but it's very slow. It's very painful. And he managed to figure out a way to continue with, with that to tour up until like a couple of years ago. And he finally called it and was like, I just, I physically can't do this anymore. And I, despite the fact that the man has, you know, managed to Frankenstein his way through so many shows, yeah, I give him a lot of credit for being like, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend, and and give a half-ass show. And both him and Ozzy, I feel bad about it. Um, so that's, uh, I think that's it for my uh, news portion. 
that doesn't mean other things hasn't happened in the world. Right. Um, but despite how we're classified on uh, your streaming <laughs> platforms, we're not a news podcast. We're, 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 we're some news, we're some pop culture commentary and... We're just two guys on one microphone today. Two guys, one mic today, and uh, we're just we're just having a good time. Uh, yeah. So today's question, yeah, today's big debate that we are going to have. Uh, at least that was the intent before I realized how polarizing we were getting here. <laughs> uh, I wanted to have a discussion about video games. Yeah. Because we love video games. Yes, we do. Um, and specifically, I wanted to ask you, uh, you and I are both super nostalgic yeah. about uh, game consoles. And uh, for me, it's mostly Nintendo. You're a little more broad, uh, dabbling Some. into Sega as yeah. well. Yeah. But um, I wanted to debate with you. I yeah. wanted to know, in your opinion, uh-huh. what is the best game console of all time so this is this is probably going to be a controversial opinion so we're going to get divisive on this okay um i will argue it is a sega genesis and i'm going to tell you why um when i think of what a video game is there is an element to it that is cartoony there is an element that is adventurous. There is an element that's a little like techie. You know, it's it's all these kinds of different things that make a video game what I think of as a video game. And I think that it was never so perfectly encapsulated as it was with the Sega Genesis. Now, very much the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And obviously Sega is not the same entity that it was anymore. So in terms of like its lasting impact in the marketplace, does it have the same legacy as some of the others? Not at all. But when I fire up a Sega game and you hear that Genesis crunch, you hear, you know, it's, it just has a certain sound to it. The games have a certain look to them that when I look at them, I go, that is a video game. And the, the only other console that really kind of uh, brings that out in me is the Nintendo, the original NES classic. I can look at NES games and I'm like, that's a video game. But the uh, just kind of that like line in between the two when they were both sort of competing for the same spotlight and there was some overlap in terms of like what their technical ability. I mean, the, the Genesis was always a, a, you know, a head and shoulders above the NES before the SNES came along. Um, but they lived in this particular moment between, I'd say, 1988 and 1992, where the games, the technology that was coming out on those platforms, to me, that's video gaming. And I say this as somebody who adores the Switch, Breath of the Wild, probably my all-time favorite video game. You know, like I, I, I think it's, it's one of the most perfect gaming experiences of all time. But when I think I'm going to play a video game, I think of the Sega Genesis. Okay, well, you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the science does not support your theory. Uh -huh. um, it is clearly the... Uh, no. <laughs> uh, what's interesting to me is that I think I always thought of the Sega Genesis as Sega's first game console. And it's actually not. It's not, yeah. Uh, because And it, that, that obviously, that, that solves a little mystery for me. Because I remember... I always compare the Genesis to the Super Nintendo. Right. But I thought the Genesis was just late to the game. 
versus Nintendo. Uh, but then, like, it was almost like they took their time and went, like, straight into 16-bit gaming. Yeah. Um, but that's... The, the years do not line up for that. No, um, the, the Master System first. You had... Uh, well, yeah, you had uh, the SG-1000, I think. It was the Japan-only oh. first console. Yeah. And then the different versions of that came out. I think there was one called the Mark III okay. or something. That was a Sega console. But I, I would argue that the Genesis was the one that uh, captured people's attention. A hundred percent. And just a quick little like funny note about the um, the Master System. Despite the fact that the Genesis is the one that captured everybody's attention, Master System came out in 86. Did not It sold continuously in Brazil until the late 90s. That's awesome. Yeah, that system never went out of style in Brazil. It hung around for almost 20 years. Um, it was wild that that one hung in there and nobody really knows much about the Master System, but it, for whatever reason in Brazil, it uh, it struck a chord and that one stuck around. So Now I get where you're, com- where you're coming from yeah. with the Sega Genesis because the game fidelity and uh, you know the, the storytelling details in those games were were great. Yeah. Um, but I will argue, you know, half that library, because of the nature of the IPs, you could also get them on Super Nintendo. In some cases, yeah. Uh, the Genesis would be followed... Okay, help me with the order here. Yeah. Because you had Sega CD and Sega Saturn. Sega CD was an add-on to the Genesis. So it technically, was an add-on to the Genesis. Yeah, and if you really want to go into it, you could include the 32X, which was also like a life support system to keep it alive. But the proper follow-up was... The Saturn. The Saturn. Yes. Um, and then the one after that was Dreamcast. Dreamcast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Poor Dreamcast. I know. There was so much hype around the Dreamcast, and then it did not do well. Yeah, and I think a lot of people... Uh, it's funny, those early um, forays into 3D gaming, like the N64, the Dreamcast, a lot of people look at those systems now and go, like, what a missed opportunity. Like, they could have done so much more. Like, the N64, if it hadn't been so difficult to architecture for, could have been, you know, a massive competitor to essentially PlayStation, PlayStation 2, right? Like, those were the the systems that really ate Nintendo's lunch during that that period. Like, the N64 is a fine system. I have a lot of good nostalgic memories of it. You know, it was was, um, the the video game system of my early teenage years. But uh, when you compare it to other efforts by Nintendo, it's not their greatest. And it was very interesting because that was the end of um, ROM cartridge yes. gaming. Well, I mean, except for Game Boy. Yeah, uh, that's true. Game yeah. Boy, the handheld gaming, uh, yep. held on to uh, cartridges. And I guess now you kind of have a resurgence of that with Switches. I was uh, going to ask what your thought on that was. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, are those technically cards or are they cartridges? I, I think I think it's a card. I think it's an SD card. I don't think okay. it's a cartridge. Okay. I think if we want to get really technical with it, I think that's the... Yeah. Okay. So you, you'd be like, well, Nintendo's back visiting that. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it was in, in the mid-90s there, uh, Nintendo was holding strong onto cartridge gaming. Everyone else was shifting over to CDs. CDs. Um, and we... Are now we're still largely on discs, um, or, or just digital, or yeah. just digital. Yeah. Um, but cartridge gaming was the big breakthrough. 
yes. for games. Uh, prior to that, and we're going way in the Wayback Machine here in the, <laughs> in the 70s, uh, you know, the games were built into whatever hardware you had. Yeah, I mean, like the Pong console. Pong originally wasn't a game that you would plug into a system the way that we think of it now. It, you bought a thing that played Pong. That's mm -hmm. all it did. It, it played Pong and the end. Maybe it had a couple of different iterations of Pong on it, but for the most part, the whole game system played just this one game. And it wasn't until the advent of, was it the Atari 2600? Kind of. Okay. Or was it the Commodore? I, I can't remember. One of, those, one of those early ones where this idea came in that what if you could switch games between? What if the hardware supported an insertable software? And uh, this was a revolutionary idea. Yeah, you, and it's funny because you have an example of this in your apartment right now. The uh, Turtles arcade console right here. That's, yeah. It's, it's really funny because this is a nostalgia throwback, um, but this is a piece of hardware designed to play one game. One game, yeah. And it's hysterical because this thing is almost like a full-size <laughs> arcade machine. And the reality is this game probably takes up such... A, a tiny amount of space Minuscule. inside this whole apparatus. Yes. <laughs> it is. It's this five and a half foot tall box, you know, that uh, it's the, the underlying game technology would eventually fit on a Super Nintendo cartridge. Um, and uh, yeah, this is, it's very much an artifact of its era, which is, it's a giant mechanism designed to do one thing. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to talk a minute, actually, about console gaming, yeah. the rise of, of console gaming, and how instrumental uh, this technology was, and take an opportunity to shout out probably a lesser-known figure yeah. that people probably should be aware of. And I'm going to go ahead and do a little virtual signaling because I am <laughs> using Black History Month uh, to do that. Uh, but he was, uh, I think a couple months ago, he featured as like a Google doodle on yeah. the Google homepage. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to talk briefly about a guy named Gerald Lawson, or Jerry Lawson. Um, he was a black software engineer, mm -hmm. uh, African-American software engineer. Uh, he was the chief hardware engineer at a company called Fairchild Semiconductor International. Yeah. That sounds like a mouthful. <laughs> Does it ever? Uh, but they, uh, that company invented the Fairchild Channel F console. Mm -hmm. And it was a console notable for two things uh, the pause button. This, this, I think, especially in modern gaming, blows people's mind that there was a time when you could not pause video games. Dude, I feel it every day playing when I play. <laughs> no, because I, I play Destiny and I, I can't. You can't pause Destiny. You can't really pause MMOs. Yeah. Like, yep. You have to. If you're in a dangerous spot, you can't just be like. Doo -doo. It's <laughs> like no. You have to get out of that area or you're dead. <laughs> you're dead and you lose all your shit. Um, you know. So yes, uh, the game will keep going. I so I find myself especially grateful of the pause button, and didn't realize that Jerry was instrumental in that. It was also though more widely known, uh, pioneering 
the game cartridge, which is a read-only memory uh, cartridge, a ROM cartridge, if you want to get semi-technical. No, but I mean, the, the, the technicality of it is what makes it so fascinating. Um, like, you know, everybody knows the term ROM, but like a ROM hack, which is, you know, when people like jump into these old Nintendo cartridges and like rewrite some of the coding them, in them to, to uh, change the game. Um, but this was a, this literally revolutionized the way that video games could be played. Mm -hmm. Because were it not for the ROM cartridge, we might still be in a space where a game needed its own machine. Yeah. And uh, so the, the, the Fairchild Channel F came out. Um, it didn't do too well on the sales because it got eclipsed by the Atari 2600. There, there it is. Thank you for the... Yeah, that's, that was the correction. Yeah. Yeah, which I believe Lawson like consulted on after his time at uh, Fairchild. Fairchild would go under and got sold to Zircon International, which okay. I couldn't find any information about them, so I don't know if they even still exist anymore. Right. Uh, the Atari 2600 became like the gold standard yes. for video gaming. It was, it, 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 were it not for like the fragmentation in the industry, it was, it, it, it's what created home video gaming. Mm -hmm. And then crashed it. But, yes, it's what created uh, it. The Lawson, Jerry Lawson went to start his own uh, game company I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, he started he started a game called uh, a company called VideoSoft. Okay, and um, worked to design a bunch of games for Atari, but also through a brand that was affiliated with Atari. Um, these games never came out. Oh, they they never came out. He made them, but they didn't come out okay. because of the crash. The video oh, game crash. so he was he was too late on that. Oh, that's unfortunate. Uh, so well, and also, this is where uh, the glories of American capitalism come into play because he was a black business owner. Yeah, that had struggled to raise the capital. Yeah, that's because up. he was a black business owner. Um, but these games looked like they were going to be fascinating. Uh, the, some of the he, he, some of these were 3D games. Really, they, they would work. You'd need 3D glasses. Oh shit! No way. Because like, that's that's where it was. But yeah. they, they were going to be 3D gaming experiences. Interesting. Uh, these games were lost for a long time. Yeah. But then they did get a re limited release. I want to say about a decade or so ago. In in how, like how how do they pull just out? like Atari released a okay. like private stash of them and there's a there's, a, there's a there's a website that you can get these yeah um but there's only a certain amount of them that exist it, do you know if they ended up including those in the um the atari anniversary collection that came out on, on as Switch? far as i know they are their separate thing wow that seems like Very a real shame. shame yeah um and it was it was unfortunate you know once his uh company closed down he just uh basically kind of did consulting work for the remainder of his life. Um, and looking at this, I didn't realize how old Activision was. Activision's been around for a long time. Yeah. And like having uh, lawsuits since the beginning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, it's, it, it's funny because people, when they talk about the Atari 2600 and they start naming games for the Atari, 
They almost never name Atari games. They almost always name Activision games mm -hmm. for the Atari because Activision actually made the better games. Yeah. Yeah. Back so, in the day. Uh, the, the, you know, um, yeah, but then the, the, the video game crash of the early 80s happened and uh, people were pretty sure that this was just going to be a blip a fad, in history. Yeah. And then uh, an Italian plumber from Japan came to visit America. Totally upended all yep. of it. Yep. All of it. Uh, but I, to paraphrase another uh, creative icon, mm. I hope we never lose sight of one thing. <laughs> that this was all started, cartridge gaming was all started by Jerry Lawson. Yeah. I, and that is uh, and his team, like, it, well, and, of and, course, and other people. But I want to I want to highlight him because um, I feel like for a long time you, you talk about uh, representation in gaming. Sure, yeah, and it's something that honestly I never would have thought about. Mm -hmm. But I have the benefit of that because I'm a middle aged white dude. Well, and and, and this is the thing is like when you think about um, like. The far-reaching effects of uh, social stratification, the idea that he was ever in a place to even get the kind of education that he would need to be successful in the computer industry at, at that period in American history is astonishing. And it does make you wonder, like, had we had, had those kinds of barriers not existed in the first place, how the video game industry in general would, be, would look so differently than what it does today. I mean, the fact that like the roots of the like the very first super players of the game, like guys like Todd Rogers and Billy Mitchell, who are like the worst fucking you know old white dudes trying to hang on to these like days of glory. I, the whole culture around video games could have looked a lot different. And the fact that um, Jerry is not even really in the conversation, despite the fact that he pushed the whole genre forward. Uh, with with the sort of architecture that he created, that's a loss. It's 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 a really it's a loss. Yeah, I, I think he gets unfairly overshadowed. I mean, I think this guy was in like the same homebrew club as like Jobs and Wozniak. Didn't he Apple guys? Didn't he actually interview Woz for a job and decided not to hire him at Fairchild? Maybe. I don't. I don't know if he interviewed him or if they were in the running for the same job. I don't. Maybe remember. that's yeah, something, I don't remember something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, they were uh, all kicking around in the same same circles. Yeah, and you know, you saw where Apple went, and uh, you saw what the game industry went, and uh, then you see what what happened to a pioneer like Jerry Lawson. Yeah, and. Like, he was okay, but, like, things could have gone a lot differently for him, too, if, uh, I feel like, if, if, if a certain amount of racism was not in play. I mean, that's, that's the unfortunate truth of a lot of, <laughs> a yeah. lot of things. <laughs> like, I hate to say it, but that's, that's just sort of the, that's the unfortunate truth. Yeah. Um, he probably... I would say he, he probably would have failed regardless just because of the timing. I mean, the fact that Waz, like, flopped 
or jobs even in that era like they they all of that fell apart like that was an industry crumbling that wasn't the individual failures of of one person i I know a lot of it gets hung on was um and the et game but like the fact of the matter is is that that was a crystallizing moment of an industry that was in uh free fall period well we had a a recession during that time right like Overall, in, yeah, that, there was like a recession happening that, at that time. I that think. was that was definitely part of it. I, the, one of the like the the larger parts though was, I mean, you have to remember back then programming an Atari twenty six hundred game is something that one person could do over the course of a couple of days. Like the, the the programming language was so much simpler back then, and it just didn't require quite the same amount of input and like you know brain-breaking work. I mean, it was still very difficult. I'm not minimizing it, but it was sim- it was just simpler, which means that companies that designed video games could just sort of pump them out into the marketplace. So there was absolutely no quality control. That's one of the reasons that the Nintendo became so successful was because Nintendo as a company maintained extraordinarily strict control over what they even allowed on their platform. Atari was the fucking wild west. If you could get it onto a game cartridge, you could put it out into the marketplace. So the market became just inundated with shit. And it was, you know, eight different versions of the same fucking game. Have you ever seen the one with the frogs jumping back and forth on the leap, the, the lily pads eating flies? Yeah. Yeah, there's like nine versions of that game. If you've played one, you've played them all. There's no reason for them to be uh, replications. But there were. Because... It was so disorganized and so unregulated, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, and so that's a lot of what contributed to the downfall of home, uh, home consoles, home gaming in the early 80s was you had an economic landscape that was not conducive to this kind of luxury. Because gaming was still very much a luxury at, at that time. It wasn't quite as mainstream as it is now. And you just had a bunch of shit in the marketplace. Nobody could tell what was good, what was bad. You had these box covers that barely resembled the actual action of the game <laughs> you know that has made me mad my entire life <laughs> I, the artwork if you ever get a chance i mean for our, our listeners check out some of the artwork the box art on atari 2600 games because it's phenomenal and then look at what the actual game looks like and you'll be like oh it's blocks yeah think of like movie posters <laughs> from the 80s yes uh, they just like put those movie posters on a game cartridge, and you're you're not. They clearly want your imagination to do a lot to do of the a, work. Some heavy lifting back then. <laughs> heavy lifting. Uh, it, and it's funny because you know the um, my little like sidekick right now is uh, the um, the Playdate. So I'm really enjoying the uh, the Playdate, the little tiny handheld console with the crank oh, yeah, on yeah. it. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I, I definitely understand now, after having had it for a couple of weeks, some of the criticism about it being essentially like a multi-library of um, Game & Watch games, because it's sort of, it's it's not quite that rudimentary, but most of the games tend to have an, like an Atari-like feel to them, and they're great pick-up-and-drop games, but they're not especially complex. And uh, I, I don't think that they necessarily try to be, nor do they have artwork that a- attempts to convey more than what it is. Um, so it always makes me laugh when I play something like Hypermeteor on it. And I'm like, this would have been exactly in line with a game that would have come out on the 2600, except that the artwork for it would have been, you know, put together by a major motion picture studio. And you would have thought that you were about to embark on some sort of grand space odyssey. And you're really just shooting asteroids. So. And 
some of those games, some of those IPs have evolved. They have. Um, I am waiting for like, I'm waiting for a heavily storied, uh, like a lore heavy, in depth, maybe dystopian Qbert. <laughs> that was not not what I was expecting. Because <laughs> um, you know what I think actually has a lot of potential, especially after Uncharted, is I would love to see a modern Pitfall Harry. Okay, I would. Lo- I think that a, a modern Pitfall game would actually be. I, there are so many places they could go with it. You know, take the original premise: you're adventuring through the jungle in search of. You know, was Pitfall you had to rescue a maiden, or was it a treasure? I want to say treasure. I think either way, you could easily turn it into the the kind of open world game that is is popular these days. So I'd love to see Pitfall. I, a dystopian Qbert man. I mean, I'd be very interested to see how how mm-hmm. that how that would be. Give me that, or give me uh, a Dig Dug game that's very heavy on Doom influence. <laughs> <laughs> give me those games. What about uh, what about Joust? Oh, Joust. That is a handheld only game in the system that I, I had oh, really? for a while. Okay. I had like a, I had like a tiny little Joust game. Oh my god, do you remember Tiger Electronics? Yeah, absolutely. Every one of those games that was basically the same, but it was so, just oh, yeah, a different. It was a yeah. single is a single Jurassic game. Park was mine. Uh. I got so far on Jurassic Park on the Tiger Electronic game. The one that I had that um I like just I played it to death. Was uh, Star Wars Pod Racing? You had a a Tiger Star Wars Pod Racing. Oh, yeah, wow. and it actually had Anakin's like a little model of Anakin's Pod Racer right mm-hmm. on the. And you would just be like, yeah, it was. Side to side. But it actually had so you like it was actually pretty advanced for a Tiger Electronic game because you had to design your pod first. So you had one of three body types that you could choose from: light, heavy, and medium. You had engines, one that had low acceleration but high top speed, and like you know, and then you always had a cheat item as well that you could attach, which were rocket boosters, vent ports that you could flash, or my personal favorite, saws that you would just cut the engines off of your <laughs> opponent's pods. <laughs> that must have come out toward the very end of like the the life of the Tiger lifespan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was excellent. <laughs> uh, I was busy playing the sixty four one. Great game. That great game. I can't play great it. Great game. Worth nothing right now. Uh, it's very hard for me to go back and play it That's now. A, but it was it was a tough game back then. Yeah, it was it was hard to find the right uh, pod racer for certain maps. Um, but I just want to take a minute. I think everybody take a minute. Say a mental. If you're a gamer, say a mental thank you to Jerry Lawson for he uh, helping to pioneer. He gave us a lot ROM cartridges and. You know, we're we're now largely kind of moved on from tech, that technology, but it was instrumental to the success and the proliferation of the gaming industry, especially yep. if you had a Nintendo or a Sega, which is not as good as a Nintendo. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Did Sega have Legend of Zelda? No, they Look, didn't. They had what was that uh, like hardest shit Arabian Beyond Oasis? Like, yeah, yeah. No, and that's the thing. Like, don't get me wrong. When you talk about like overall lifespan and legacy, you can uh, go blow for blow with games to SNES and Sega to a point, and then Super Nintendo, like they're it, they they just outstrip Sega by like leaps and bounds. 
it is just there, there is something so in the moment about the Genesis. Like when you put in a Genesis game, you immediately feel like you're back in 1991. And just again, in terms of what when I think of a video game, that's what I think of. It's and and this is maybe nostalgia talking. But I just, I, I see those goofy cartoony graphics. I hear the crunchy noise and, you know, the clicky clacky three button controller. And I'm like, this is video game. This is what this is. This is what this, this uh, like medium is. Shouldn't be anything more complicated than this. I do enjoy some of the more complicated games. Again, Breath of the Wild is probably my favorite game of all time. I know that makes me really basic and just, you know, it's the pumpkin spice latte of, of games these days. <laughs> um, but I do, I, I love everything about it. But that said, there there is just something about those simpler era video games that to me, when I think video game, it's what the Sega Genesis presented. Well, get ready for Pumpkin Spice 2, baby, because <laughs> the Zelda sequel is coming Thank in just God. a few months. And I am cautiously optimistic about it. I I, I have I have hopes. I'm I have started re replaying uh, the original right now, so I've completely started over um, with intentions of hundred percenting over the next couple of months before Tears of the Kingdom, so that I can get my and I'm just hoping that they don't completely remap the controls and I pick up Tears of the Kingdom and all my reflexes are out the door. I'm pretty like there'll be some differences in game mechanics, of course, but I'm pretty sure everything's going to feel very familiar. I would hope so. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I say cautiously hopeful because uh, Zelda Two Adventure of Link sucks. Uh, Majora's Mask is fine, but it's it's no Ocarina of Time. So this Breath of the Wild sequel, Tears of the Kingdom, um, I will be ready to have some moments where I'm like, uh, yeah. I think Zelda 2 gets a bad rap. I will defend Zelda 2 in the same way that I'll defend Castlevania 2 any day of the week. Um, I think that they are both very fun games, very difficult and different from their original, but I think that they're... And I have a very special place in my heart for Majora's Mask. I, I don't know that I will make the argument that it's better than Ocarina of Time, but I fucking love Majora's Mask. Majora's Mask is is fine. Yeah. And like, don't get me wrong, it was a Zelda game that I got to play after uh -huh. Ocarina of Time, and I was happy with it. But the the originality of the story is a little like I don't know. It's it's kind of like a like a Zelda meets Alice in Wonderland sort of thing. Yeah. I where think you're like, oh, it's everything you think you know, but you don't. Yep. Um. That's a longer conversation on another Okay. Time, so. I think we're <laughs> yeah, at time yeah. on this week's episode, guys. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, and uh, thanks for, yeah, thanks for hanging out uh, here in my kitchen in Nashville, Tennessee. We'll see you guys. See you next week.